Hey, all you nature nerds, this is You're Gonna Die Out There. Welcome back, nature nerds, to another episode of You're Gonna Die Out There. This is a full, full, full episode that Megan is gonna share with us. A full stomach episode. Oh, okay. But I don't know. I mean, (laughs) so we're actually recording ourselves today because I have no idea why. Because we're trying to be, you know, like hip and stuff. Yeah. This is not, this is very uncomfortable for a Gen Xer. Anybody out there with me on this? Yeah, it's, well, it's not cool. I love that I'm looking at you and I can tell that you are like intensely avoiding <laughs> looking at the screen. You're like, I'm not looking at this I am screen. only looking, looking at, at Megan. I am only looking at <laughs> Megan. <laughs> oh, so good. We're going to do um, we're going to do something better later. Yeah, we're just trying this out. This is a test run. Yeah. So if you're listening on whatever you listen on. Wherever, I guess we're going to post this on Instagram, maybe, first. Or TikTok? Or TikTok. I don't know. I don't know. I'm leaving that. Other. I don't know. I'm leaving that to you. We're we're really good at this, Jen. We're doing awesome. So we're not doing our science news, remember? We yes. have our nuggies. And if you want to hear a ton of science news, you can go to our Patreon. Yes. And become officially a nature nerd. A patron. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Let me tell you that today we're going to talk about Nahani National Park. Have you ever heard of it? Have you ever heard that name before? I don't know. It's in Canada. Okay. Canada. So Nahani National Park, I'll just start out with like some basic history. Then we're going to go into some stories later. All right. It's going to be good. I feel like you're going to enjoy this. I'm excited. (laughs) Nahani National Park is on a list of the seven wonders of Canada. That was decided in an online poll conducted in 2007, sponsored by the CBC Televisions, the National and CBC Radio One's Sound Like Canada. That's a long title for like. I wonder if Niagara is on there. It is, Jen. Because it's also in Canada. Of course. Yes. So number seven, I'll just go through the top seven. Okay. Because fun. Number seven with 44,000 votes is the Cabot Trail. That's in Nova Scotia. Number six with 55,000 votes is the Rockies that are in British Columbia, Alberta. Number five with 61,000 votes. That's the Northern Lights. I was like, wow. Number five. Yeah. Not even in the upper three in northern Canada. Number four with 64,000 votes is the Nahani National Park, which we're going to talk about today in the Northwest Territory. Mm-hmm. Number three with 67,000 votes is the Bay of Fundy in New Brunswick, Nova Scotia. Number two, you guessed it, Jen, is 81,000 votes, Niagara Falls, Ontario. And number one with 177,000 votes was the Sleeping Giant, also in Ontario. The Sleeping Giant? What Never heard of it. I know about the sleeping lady in Coast Ride, but I don't know about the sleeping giant. <laughs> Maybe we, that's her, like... You find out what that is. Her dude. All right. So the National Park, Nahani National Park Reserve, is in the Decho. This is great. People will now see us mispronounce and then stare at each other. Like, it yeah. sounds good. That sounds right, right? Yeah, uh, totally right. D-E-H-C-H-O, Decho, region of the Northwest Territories, Canada. 
it protects a portion of the Mackenzie Mountains natural region. The central feature of the park is the South Nahani River, or Naha Dehe, which runs the length of the park beginning near Moose Ponds and ending where it meets the Liard River near Nahani Boot, in case you know where those places are. Not at all. Canada. It's a rare example of what's called an antecedent river. Have you ever heard this before? No. Basically, it's that the mountains were rising slow enough and the river was super powerful that the river stayed where it was and the mountains didn't move like it didn't move its course at all. Oh, okay. So it just is always it's basically approximately where it was today as it was before the mountains even came up. So the river's like, deal with it. I'm the Nahani River, you know, <laughs> right? like that's yeah, that's, yeah, it's living its life. That's right. And everything else can just go on around it. Thank you very much. Exactly. At Virginia Falls or Nalecho, I think I'm saying that right, the river actually falls 90 meters or 295 feet. And if you include this rapids that are like right above the falls, it's more than twice the height of Niagara Falls. Wow. It's pretty big. That's really big because the Niagara is crazy. Yeah, it's like really big, Jen. But I feel like they're like, well, if you include the rapids above it and like how it goes down, (laughs) then it's like twice, you know. Right, right, right. Anyway, right in the middle of the falls, you can see pictures of it. I'm probably going to put them in our pictures. There's this huge rock that sticks up out of the falls. It's called Mason's Rock, and Mm -hmm. it was named after Bill Mason, who's a famous Canadian canoeist, author and filmmaker. Fun fact, I've never heard of him. Neither have I. So American. (laughs) So sorry. We're like, we're sorry. We don't pay attention to Canada. Like, (sighs) you guys are just too nice. Too nice. We, you know, we never read anything in the tabloids about what's going on in Canada. Right. There's, you know. I mean, maybe this story would be. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get there. Okay. All right. Fun fact, due to the mist that's like created in that area of the valley, the immediate vicinity of the falls is home to several rare orchid species. Ooh. Pretty cool. We have some of those here. That's true. Yeah. Everywhere. I'm pretty sure there's rare orchid species (laughs) everywhere, just, but you know, whatever. (laughs) I mean, we just have a lot of rare orchids. Like a lot of one kind of orchid that's quote unquote rare. <laughs> yes, very rare. That's an inside. everywhere. I feel like that's an inside joke. It is. We're being rude. All right. Okay. <laughs> there are four noteworthy canyons reaching 1,000 meters or 3,300 feet in depth. Get ready for these names, Jen. They are the first, second, third, and fourth canyon. Wow. Yeah. I feel like that's something you would do. Yeah. They're like, that's Canyon 101. That's Canyon 102. 103, BBC one, a BBC two. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, 100%. The name Nahani comes from the indigenous Diné language, the name for the area called Nahane Dehi, which means river of the land of the Naha people. Okay. There you go. I think later on, I'll tell you a little bit more about the um, Diné language and like where that word comes from. Okay. The park was among the world's first four natural heritage locations to be inscribed as a World Heritage Site by UNESCO in 1978, I guess mainly because of its picturesque wild rivers, canyons, and waterfalls. Just like a lot of really cool stuff in this beautiful park reserve. The mountains were formed when North American and Pacific plates collided together. And while that created those mountain ridges, there's also a lot of what are my favorite uh, land formations batholiths 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 so again that's basically where magma pushes up the sandstone like whatever sediment there is like the rocks or whatever Mm -hmm. pushes it up but never comes out she had a lot of field trips to stone mountain as a child i learned a lot yeah i learned a lot about it 
So it makes like... me really happy. <laughs> there are some notable mountains in the park, including Mount Nirvana, fun name. Officially, uh, there's also an officially unnamed peak, which is 2,773 meters or 9,098 feet. It is the highest mountain of the Northwest Territories. So it doesn't have a name. I guess if you want to go conquer it and then name it, maybe. Well, if you go to Mount Nirvana, yeah. just come as you are. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Thank you. Beautiful. That's beautiful. There are a number of different habitats. There are sulfur hot springs, alpine tundra, mountain ranges, and spruce and aspen forests. Mm -hmm. So there's a variety. Yeah. If you're not into the forests or the mountains, go to the hot springs. You're probably not listening to this podcast. Uh, Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) The park lies within three of Canada's ecozones: the Taiga Cordillera. I've never Cordillera. (laughs) just murdering the names of things perfect that's in the west the taiga plains in the east and a small southern portion in the boreal cordillera what is this word i should have looked it up (laughs) i like i like that i like it boreal cordillera (laughs) we're gonna get some tacos after this okay according to parks canada there are 42 mammal 180 bird 16 fish and a few, that's, quote, a few amphibian species found in the park. They're like, there's a few. <laughs> and that's super just, scientific. <laughs> right. And that just tells me that, like, nobody has looked at the herps there. You know what I mean? They're just yeah. like, whatever. There's some amphibians over here. No mention of reptiles, but that's fine. Mammal species include black bear, timber wolf, moose, shrew, vole, arctic ground squirrel, marmot, mink, beaver, pine marten, lynx, snowshoe hare, river otter, muskrat, and red fox. Those Do are all remember super all? cute. Yes. And they don't say beaver in here, but I know. Oh, wait, no, I said beaver, didn't I? Yeah, I did. Never mind. Of course there's beavers. There's beavers. Mm-hmm. Uh, birds include American kestrels, all the way up there in Canada, mm-hmm. bald and golden eagles, loons, red-necked gribs, sharp-skinned hawks, and trumpeter swans. Fun. Yeah. Also, it includes the only known nesting site of the whooping crane. I don't know if that's the only known nesting site in Canada or just everywhere huh it doesn't say no that really makes me think about because i know it is they're yeah yeah they're they're very rare right huh i have to look that up i don't even know just right i don't know i'm not a bird person so if you're a bird person let us know i feel like when i was going through different like trainings Mm -hmm. for um wildlife refuge management we went and visited this area where they're trying to get whooping cranes to whip it yep and that was like around one of the Virginias. <laughs> we won't go there again. I think it was in West Virginia. I don't know. Or we drove somewhere else. It was somewhere Amazing. up there. Yeah. It makes me think that they're saying only in Canada because I went to school in Macon, Georgia, mm-hmm. and the hockey team for Macon, Georgia is the Macon Whoopie, and their mascot is a whipping crane. Get it? Macon, uh, Macon Whoopie. That yeah. somebody was like... Listen, guys, I got it. I got it. (laughs) It would be like so funny. Anyway, lots of fish are found in this area as well. Do you want me to list them? No. Okay, I'm moving on. Okay. I was like, I did write them all out, like just in case. I mean, there's some like white fish and some long nose suckers and long nose dace and some trout. Yeah, no, we're we're good. Okay, good. good. The fish people are like, wow, rude. I know. Rude. Sorry. 
Sorry. Rude. So because the soil is diverse, there is more opportunity for a diversity of plants. There are more than 700 species of vascular plants and 300 species of both bryophytes and lichen can be found in the park. And it has more diversity than any other area in the Northwest Territories. So kind of cool. There is also a very rare species of aster called the Nahani aster that's only found in that park, which is pretty freaking cool. That is cool. The park itself was originally established in 1972 by then Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau. And I'm like, is that current Trudeau's what? Granddad? Dad? Granddad. Oh, Right? Oh, I don't know. Maybe. Unless that's, just, a, just unless a, that's a common name. People in Canada are like, that's a really common name. That's like the Smiths of Canada. Right? Yeah. Anyway, I did it. I'm sorry. I didn't look it up because politics. And like, how did they get someone so cute to like. So handsome. Be and their his family is adorable. What is he? Prime Minister? Yeah. Yeah. And then and they like speak French and stuff. Yeah. Anyway. Initially, the area of the park was designated as 4,766 kilometers squared. That's uh, 1,840 square miles. In June of 2000, the federal government, the Canadian federal government, with the Death Cho First Nations formed a team to evaluate the park. They did four things under this evaluation. First, they prepared an ecological integrity statement. The second thing they did was they completed a review of the park management plan. Then they prepared an interim park management arrangement and prepared a memorandum of understanding respecting park expansion between the two entities. What's up? I'm raising my hand. I have a question. Yes. Was it called the Wood Buffalo National Park in Canada? No, I don't think so. Because they say that the Wood Buffalo National Park oh, of oh, Canada. Wait, yeah, maybe it is. I'm sorry. Is Yeah, they say that that is the only, it was Whooping established home. in 1922. And that they, in Whooping Cranes, yeah, they nest there. That's cool. And they winter in, like, Texas, weirdly. Weird. And the place I was at was actually in Maryland. Sorry. We started in West wow. Virginia and we went. It was at the Patuxent Wildlife Research Center. I went there. It was cool. That's. Uh, I just couldn't remember where it was. It was a long time ago, guys. Come on. So far. A lot of life has happened <laughs> between then and now. So, anyway, continue. I, yes, I, I shall. The review that they did, this like four stage review, they completed it in three years. So in 2003, and then they moved into more of like a management phase. And on June 9th of 2009, they announced legislation that would increase the area of the Nahani National Park to cover 30,050 kilometers squared or 11,602 square miles. That includes 91% of the greater Nahani ecosystem and the De Cho region and most of the South Nahani River watershed. I did read on the Conservation Alliance's website that the, quote, the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society used Conservation Alliance support in its successful campaign to expand the Nahani National Park Preserve by a stunning 7 million acres. So I'm a little, I guess, because acres, right? If people mm -hmm. talk in acres mm -hmm. and square miles. So if you need to know, that's like 7 million acres of land. It's large. That is huge. Yeah. And if you think about that, they started out with, you know, like substantially smaller what is that, like five times smaller portion mm -hmm, in the mm -hmm. beginning? And now they're like, just keep expanding it out, which is great. That's like Alaska size yeah. reserves. The thing that I like about this whole park preserve area is that the First Nations people who are in that area really like the government works with them to make sure that everything is where they want it to be. And I like it. That's good. I dig it. Yeah. Makes me happy. Because it's Canada. Although Canada's done some real crappy things. 
to native peoples in the past. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean. But like now. But like now they're trying to like. Yeah. Yeah. The new park area is estimated to be the home of around 500 grizzly bears, two herds of woodland caribou, as well as species of alpine sheep and goats and other species. The new boundary will include the highest mountains and largest ice fields in the Northwest Territories. Wow. Pretty cool. Mm -hmm. There's also, they've made some more landing sites. So you can't access a lot of this park. Like you have to take a boat or a plane. It's difficult to traverse that area. So they added some landing sites. I think previously there were like a couple, two or three, and now there's going to be something like five or they're adding five more. Anyway, just so you know, in case you're going to go visit there. I might. Which after the story, you may not. Oh, then probably not. (laughs) (laughs) There are two of them. uh, Two of the landing sites are designated for day use visitation. And then all the other sites, the visitors actually have to stay overnight in the park. And then they get picked up the next day, I think. Or like however long their trip is going to take. Let's talk about visitors. There are around 800 to 1,000 people who visit the park every year. Most of those are overnight visitors, and they are traveling down the South Nahani portion of the river. That's not very many. It's not very many. Eight hundred to a thousand. Huh? Really hard to get there. Okay. Yeah, I don't. I feel like I didn't really like emphasize that, but it's really hard to get there. Like, it's really hard to stay there, even. Okay. All the things. Is it's it kind of like parts difficult. of Alaska that you? It's so remote. There's yeah. like one plane that yes can maybe get you there. Yeah. Okay. And it's like people who go there are going there to trap usually. And there's like indigenous communities that use those areas. Right, right. But so they have to get permission to. Yeah, there's a lot of permitting. Yes. That happens. That's good. The park is open year round, but most visitors come in June, July, or August. Virginia Falls is the only area of the park where a reservation is required. And you have to do that months in advance because I guess that's the place that everybody visits. The, all the thousand people just go to Virginia Falls. And right. Then, like one one other guy takes a plane someplace else. It's like hardcore. Yeah. For safety reasons, all visitors must register with park officials when they come in. And then they have to deregister within 24 hours of leaving. Okay. Yeah. So they make sure everyone's out. out. Yeah. Uh Mm -hmm. The only practical way to get there, like I mentioned, was by float plane or helicopter. And I do also want to mention here that there is this kind of amazing YouTube video that I found that was put out onto YouTube by Provincial Archives of Alberta, but it was filmed by Mel and Ethel Ross. They are called amateur filmmakers. It Mm -hmm. was made in 1958. And it's like you know that they're carrying a giant camera and mm-hmm. you know that they have to like set it up, but they film it in a way that's like you see them like walking these little areas. Wow. And so it's like they had to set it up, do the shot. And then all the time they're like doing other things. It's crazy. Wow. And at one point they're like leaving and they lose an entire bag of supplies. Oh, yeah. And it kind of relates to another story I'm going to tell later, but and it's like then they have to really get out. But somehow they filmed all of it. I don't know. It's great. And it was filmed in 1958, but Mel does like the voiceover recording for Uh it. And you can tell that he's much older and he has like a little bit of a whistle in his talk. Uh And it's like an old kind of an old timey sound to his voice. (laughs) It's so good. It's like over. I think it's like an hour and 30 minutes. You should definitely watch it. So it's fun. Oh, yeah. I and mean, it just, sounds good. Mel and Ethel like, just doing the thing. <laughs> yeah. And like Mel cooks flapjacks one morning 
and he like screws up the flapjack, you know, like he flips it and it like lands kind of on the side of the pan. He's like, that's fine. I'll eat that one. (laughs) I don't know. It's so cute. It's so cute. (laughs) So wholesome. It's super wholesome. Yeah, I would love to see that. I will tell you the description uh, reads, This travel film was made by amateur filmmakers Mel and Ethel Ross about their expedition to the Nahani National Park Reserve in Northwest Territories, Canada in 1958. They were drawn to the region by myths and folktales that painted the area and particularly the Headless Valley or Nahani Valley as being a dangerous and mysterious place where prospectors and adventurers went missing or were killed in unexplained circumstances and later found decapitated. (gasps) Oh, I love this. It's so I'm so into it now. Yeah. So, but before we get to all that. It's all like Sleepy Hollow. Very. Okay. Let's talk about the native people who are in this mysterious valley, the Dene. Okay. Or Dene. So I pulled a lot of this information from an archived tribe website. Mm-hmm. And I found it from another YouTube video that I'll talk about later. But it's linked in the references if you want to go look at it. Mm-hmm. The Diné are Aboriginal people of an area in Canada which stretches from Hudson's Bay through the Northwest Territories and Yukon Territory to the interior of Alaska and from central Alberta to the Arctic Ocean. So kind of like a large area. Mm -hmm. Uh, This includes the northernmost parts of Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and British Columbia. The word Diné, which translates, is broken down into two words, de, meaning flow, and ne, meaning Mother Earth. There are many distinct regional groups, each with their own territory and dialect, but they share a common ancestor and come from the same language family. Okay. In the Northwest Territories, there are five tribal groups. I think I'm saying these right. Chippewan, the Dogrib, Yellowknife, Slavi, and Satu Dene. And the regions of the Dene are known as Dene-de, Dene-de, there we go, Dene-de, which means, quote, the creator's spirit flows through his land. Oh, well, kind of nice. That's so nice. I feel like they're very rivery. Yes. Everything very about them is very flowy, very rivery. And, yes. Yeah. So the Nahani River is like, obviously. Yeah. Where they're going to be. Yeah. The Dene, like most all indigenous people, have always lived in harmony with the land. And it is said that their respect and knowledge for the land has allowed them to thrive in one of the most demanding environments on the planet. They traveled a lot of the time by birch bark or spruce bark canoes. And then some of them actually built moose skin boats. And there's a documentary that I'll mention later where they actually, like current Dene people, build new moose skin boats. Like they're re- They're bringing reviving. back the, tra- yeah, yes. the tradition. Yes, right. reviving the tradition, which is super cool. Mm-hmm. The Dene still use rivers as highways both in winter and summer, but primarily they rely on moose, caribou, black bear, geese, ducks, grouse, ptarmigan, beaver, fish, and smaller game in terms of like their sustenance. That's oh, a lot. Of, that's a lot of stuff, but- <laughs> I wonder if they use uh, castorium for their vanilla musk. <laughs> They're just making vanilla musk. I'm just wondering. I mean, 100%. <laughs> Traditionally, the Dene were accomplished hunters who traveled as far north as the Arctic coast on snowshoes, packing everything they needed to survive on their backs and hunting with snares. And what's kind of incredible is that they hunt or hunted, I don't know if they still do, caribou with snares. Wow. Which is like, how big is that snare? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's huge. And also they use uh, bush traps, which, yeah, super impressive. They did use dogs as pack animals, but they didn't start using dog sleds until after the Europeans showed up. That was more of a European concept. The Nahani and the Slavi people often built log huts in winter. And some of the tribes actually built semi-subterranean houses of sod and logs. But most of the tribes lived in skin tents. um, So they had like hides over poles, like teepees. Mm Mm-hmm. Or what we would think of 
as teepees. Right. They lived in and still live in extended family groups traveling over traditional routes within their hunting land. Groups frequently met at customary sites brought together by fish spawning or the movements of caribou or like when geese or ducks come together, whatever they were hunting, right? Mm -hmm. When they did meet up, the occasion was celebrated by feasting, dancing, and drumming. The caribou skin drum has become a symbol of the Diné and is used in many ceremonies. So kind of cool. Nice. Today, most Diné live in communities but remain close to the land. They may use a twin otter aircraft to travel north onto the barren lands to hunt caribou, but they still butcher the animal and pack it in traditional ways, neatly wrapped in the hides. And many of them still know the old ways, use the same skills, tools, all of that stuff for, you know, healing or cooking or whatever they're going to be doing. Yeah, so they've really managed to pass down the... To keep those traditions yeah, alive. The culture. Yeah, culture. Mm -hmm. In northern Canada, historically, there were ethnic feuds between the Diné and the Inuit. In 1996, Diné and Inuit representatives participated in a healing ceremony to reconcile the two groups, which was super cool. Ben Choco, Northwest Territories, is the largest Diné community in Canada. And I will mention that a number of the five main tribes that I said earlier that they were almost wiped out completely. Uh, and then the remnants of those tribes were absorbed into larger tribes. So, I mean, there's definitely like we've talked about indigenous strife and having mm -hmm. to deal with Europeans. There was disease and then there was warring between tribes that reduced numbers but they would just kind of absorb those that were left over from those smaller tribes into a bigger tribe so you might have some people who have like ancestors in more than one tribe because way back in the day you know their great-grandmother was mm -hmm. in uh was a yellow knife but then got like put into a chippewa or whatever i hope things went better for them yeah i i mean i definitely get the feeling that they didn't I didn't read a lot. I mean, it was kind of difficult to find good information about uh -huh. them. But it's like today feels like they have a lot of positive things happening for them. Right. So I feel like we can focus on that. But I feel like their plight was the same as every indigenous mm -hmm. tribe in North America. Just getting pushed out of their place. Yeah. And um, European settlers bringing disease and killed and wars yeah. and... I will say it seems that there are some of these areas because it was so difficult to get to. That's what I was thinking that it's, I was I was hoping that because they were so isolated. Yeah. In like a difficult terrain that hopefully they it, would be protected from some of that. It does seem kind of that way, but also I'm not 100 percent sure. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about lore Ooh. in mm -hmm. the Nahani Valley. OK, let's do it. I love lore. Bring it. So the Diné consider the Nahani Valley as being evil. Like it's always been evil. Oh, like from even though they live there. The beginning of time. Well, not everybody lives in the Nahani Valley. Itself. Oh, in the so valley. Okay. There's actually the river like crosses that whole area, but there's this like big turn in the mm -hmm. river. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of considered the Nahani Valley, like this one little section. Okay. And it's just the, Bad news. the place of evil. Yeah. yeah. So there's a number of stories. So let's uh, let's start out. Like with... you definitely lose your cell service there. Well, yes. <laughs> 100%. You turn the corner. That's it. And that's it just it. gets really dark. It's really dark. It's and so dark. There's like the red eyes, yellow eyes in the oh, for sure. For in the sure. forest. The Nahani Valley monster is the first one we'll talk about. But really, this is a collection of creatures that are said to inhabit the Nahani Valley, the first of which is called just the evil spirit. There you okay, go. Okay. This evil spirit is said to haunt the region and make its presence known with otherworldly shrieks on cold and windy nights. Ew. Well, is that a cougar? <laughs> just saying. <laughs> it's, just, it's just a cougar out there screaming. I mean, they do. Perfect. <laughs> 
The second of these of this monster group are just giants. There are giants that are said to live in the Nahani Valley. Mm-hmm. They actually use the hot springs, specifically the rabbit kettle hot springs in the Nahani Valley to cook their meals, mainly made of men. Oh. They're men meals. All I can think about is like the Hobbit right now. Right. Right? <laughs> yeah, like the trolls. The trolls. Yeah, yeah. hundred mm-hmm. percent. There are said to be prehistoric monsters. Hunters and native trappers would come back talking about how there were mammoths, mastodons, and prehistoric beasts in the Nahani Valley. That would be cool. That they would find their tracks in the snow and creek beds. And some frontiersmen may have even returned from the Nahani wilderness with precious ivory tusks with flesh still attached to the bone. What? Yeah. But of course, these are all rumors. There's no like photos or evidence. I'm just saying. This next one is kind of interesting. The Wahila. It's a huge wolf-like creature linked to deaths, accidents, the unexplained and weirdness that happened to geologists and naturalists that entered the Nahani Valley in the 1960s. Is that like a devil hound? What are those things called? Yeah, like a like a hellhound. Hellhound. Thank you. Yeah. And actually, I I feel like I actually saw another video talking about the Nahila being a giant kind of ape-like man, like almost like a Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of Bigfoot talk in the Nahani Valley lore. Right. Um, you know, there's a lot of random. This next one is like a mini Bigfoot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's called the Nukluk. A oh, short, that's cute. <laughs> yeah, kind of. It's a short, half-naked subhuman creature spotted around Fort Laird, Fort Simpsons, and Nahani Boot areas. Mm-hmm. He carries a stone club and has a long, dark beard. And I also learned that they are covered in fur, like reddish. Well, you said he's half-naked. fur. Right, yeah. Is he wearing like a loincloth? I think it's just the fur. I feel like, how do you know he's half-naked, you know? Is it just because I... he's not wearing pants? or Right. I don't know. Is he just wearing a hat? <laughs> He just has like a little a beret, a fedora. <laughs> just that's all he has. <laughs> so he has a ski mask. That's all. But yeah, the, he's kind of described as like a mini Bigfoot, and I like a mini foot. <laughs> what am I thinking of? Something with oh, I'm thinking of like Lamb Before Time. What was it called? The the Lamb Before Proudfoot or oh Proudfoot? Was that Lamb yeah, Before yeah, yeah. the dull dinosaur movie? Yeah, how the, the they called the dinosaur Proudfoot. Yeah, okay. Right? Well, I was mean it? that's also no, I think also. We're thinking of Lord of the Rings because there's no, 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 no. Proudfoot. It's not Proudfoot. No, no, no. I think you're right. Proudfoot. That's the the main little dinosaur. Is it the long neck? The long neck and yeah, something like that. That Anyway, sorry. I just hope everybody's yelling at us right now. I they always do. I went. I just had lunch with one of our friends. Yeah. Yesterday. And she was like, sometimes I get so irritated listening to you guys because I start yelling at you when you like when you don't know something or when we like blank out. Uh-huh. I love it. And I was like, good. So good times. Yeah. On to the next lore, Jen. This is the story of the Naha or the Vanished Tribe. So this was a nomadic warlike tribe. So they were like into just starting fights with everybody. They lived in mountain caves. There are a lot of caves in the Nahani Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would frequently descend to rave, rave, rave <laughs> go to raves. You can hear it. They can still hear it today. They brought the LSD. They had the lights. It was crazy. No, they came down and raided the other Diné villages in the lowlands around the Liard. I think I'm saying that right. Liard and Mackenzie Rivers. And this is a quote, all right, from this one. I forget which site I got this from, but I thought this was great. After years of beatdowns by the Naha, the group of brave Diné warriors had finally had enough and journeyed into Naha territory for a surprise ambush. 
But instead of fierce Naha, they found abandoned teepees and nothing else. The Naha tribe had literally disappeared and were never seen again. Huh. Mm-hmm. Years of beatdowns. <laughs> yeah. Just years of beatdowns. They were like, we're over it. After, or, or were they talking about years of sweet beats from those, wa- from those <laughs> raves? <laughs> they, just, they just went to another rave, basically. Yeah. yeah. They're like, this is lame. This is, we got to get some better drugs, you guys. Anyway. All right. <laughs> Next in our lore is the Tropical Valley. This is mostly, this part that I'm going to read next is mostly an excerpt from The Legends of the Nahani Valley written by Hammerson Peters in 2017. Tropical Valley. It sounds nice, like Candyland or something. Yeah, but like in the middle of the taiga. Yeah, true. In the early 1800s, fur traders of the Northwest Company established Fort Liard and Fort of the Forks, which was later renamed Fort Simpson. Yeah, because Fort of the Forks. <laughs> They're like, can someone just rename that? That's just weird. It seems like there's a typo here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. It was, and it was like Private Simpson. They're like, can you just rename He's like, sure. Fort Simpson. Sounds great. All right. Um, In 1823, two years after the Northwest Company became Hudson's Bay Company, which is like we've talked about. I think I'm sure we've talked about them on previous things. Oh, we just talked about them on the Beaver episode. Thank you. I was like, I knew. That was not that long ago. I'm sorry. (laughs) Was that like last week? It was like a week ago. It's fine. So anyway, two years after Northwest Company became the Hudson's Bay Company, a valiant voyager named John McLeod (laughs) attempted to explore... The remote valley, but did not make it far upriver on account of the rapids. He embarked upon a similar expedition the following year and met with similar results. Doesn't sound it, very valiant to me. Right. Isn't that that phrasing that like, if you just keep doing the same thing over and over and get the same results, but you expect something different, like that means you're, you've lost it. Like <laughs> right. no more marbles. Anyway, <laughs> in the summer of 1897, word spread of a fabulous gold strike in the Klondike. It's very big, like the Ooh, Canadian Klondike. gold strike. Mm, very exciting. Everybody gets like just a uh, ice cream. <laughs> that would be glorious, I feel like, in the 1800s. Oh, Can you imagine sure. if somebody handed you one of those after <laughs> like, like li- just a life in the 1800s <laughs> in general, and then somebody hands you a Klondike bar? Like, you're done. You can, and I feel you can like, rest in peace. I feel, <laughs> I feel like people wouldn't even feel inconvenienced that it doesn't have a stick. No. You know, they would just be like, this is The amazing. happiness. Yeah. The joy. If we Unless ever... you're like lactose intolerant. <laughs> then it's over. <laughs> but at least you died there's happy. no cure for diarrhea back then. <laughs> no, you're just... <laughs> it's just the 1800s. <laughs> it's bad news. What did you die from? The 1800s. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. In no time, men and women from all over the world were on their way to the northern diggings. These so-called stampeders approached the Yukon by a number of different trails. One of them was a grueling all-Canadian overland route, which began in Edmonton, Alberta. Of the 766 stampeders who attempted this treacherous trail, a handful opted to take an even more hazardous shortcut by way of the South Nahani River. Oh, Donner Party stuff right, right? here. Don't take <laughs> oh, shortcuts. Sure. Do we not. That. We learned this already. Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't, don't ever do, do, it. do it. Although at least two of these men successfully reached their destination, two, Jen, two, many more disappeared in the Misty Valley, long shunned by the natives. Again, don't go there if the natives don't go there. Yeah. If the indigenous tribe says, eh, that's evil. Yes. Maybe don't go there. When in Rome. Exactly. In the aftermath of the Klondike gold rush, sourdoughs, who were, I guess, veterans of the Northland. Sourdoughs? I think they're just like Canadians, like hardcore Canadians, but they're called sourdoughs. And I'm like, 
like a bread? Did they did they, they invent they, the bread? I don't know. But there's so many questions that I did not answer. I'm <laughs> so, sorry. <laughs> I have so many question marks around go floating around my head. So these sourdoughs who failed to strike it rich. <laughs> so they it's, did. Like, it's like the Klondikes and the sourdoughs. <laughs> and right now, just so you know, we're doing a keto thing. And it's like, <laughs> this is not helping. So this is not just... Now no, I just, want a Klondike bar. Uh, now I just want to eat some uh, sourdough bread and uh, then finish it up with a Klondike. Like a French onion soup Ooh, in a sourdough mm-hmm. bowl. Come on. No, like a like a chowder. Oh, yeah, a chowder. Oh, yeah. I'd be into some chowder. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Moving on. Okay, so there were these, after the gold rush, there were these people who were like from the north who didn't make any money. They like did not find any gold. They started to look other places for gold. So a number of these restless prospectors wandered into the Nahani country and began to pan the myriad creeks, which fed the South Nahani and the flat rivers. Some who returned from these diggings filled northern trading posts and saloons with strange tales of a paradisical, a paradise valley. Uh (laughs) I cannot say that word. Somewhere in the mountains of the Mackenzie. This valley they maintained was snow free all year round. Its tropical climate attributed to the hundreds of bubbling hot springs which ran through it. Cloaked by heavy fog, the valley soil was black and fertile, supporting a spectacular variety of lush and exotic. Yeah. Lush and exotic greenery. Yeah. Like super. What is that? Like a whole different climate. Completely different. They called it the subarctic Eden. It was purportedly a hunter's paradise due to the excellent grazing conditions. It teemed with wild game. Uh, One prospector said that the moose, caribou, and mountain sheep that lived in this lost world were so well-fed as to appear almost square from fat. Wow. It is is a very... Huge. It is a very biblical Eden, isn't it? Yeah. And so my... I did find, like, this paper written in the 50s about it, like, kind of, like, people's different um, accounts Mm -hmm. of, like, going there. and, And I think that this is a situation where either they ate something in the forest... (laughs) <laughs> that like <laughs> led them they had some ecstasy they had a little e experience uh uh-huh. just like rubbing the ground and like the lush go look at i up. love it so much the black soil <laughs> yeah or they were just like they you know didn't have enough supplies and they got they had hunger you know what Starvation. i mean they just started hallucinating yeah. right right they had hunger <laughs> they, had, they had hunger <laughs> and everywhere they looked were like giant cheeseburger shaped caribou but they didn't realize they were cheeseburgers because you know right it's like 1897 yeah and they didn't know what a klondike bar was yet right they could have envisioned it exactly anyway so kind of neat little mystery little yeah that's weird so i mean but it's not there no one's found it like no one these are all just like word of mouth accounts we need some more like we need some real life indiana jones people here yeah so so we'll talk a little bit about these people that did go to, to this region and what happened to them oh So let's move on to the most mysterious stories and how the Nahani Valley became known as the Valley of the Headless Men. Let's do it. Mm -hmm. All right. Mysterious deaths. So like Hammerson Peters mentioned, the Klondike gold rush happened from around 1896 to 1899. There were like 100,000 people that set out for the Yukon. They were like, we're going to make a ton of money. It's the gold rush. Right. Right, I feel like we all know what that is. Mm -hmm. Only 30,000 of them actually made it. And those found that there wasn't actually a lot of gold that's, in the Yukon. That's kind of a lot, though. 30,000? I mean, yeah, still. But still. But still, Jen. Okay. Um, in 1904, there were these two brothers. So this is after kind of the gold rushy time. Mm-hmm. There are these two brothers, Willie and Frank McLeod. And I don't know if they were related to that other dude oh, that I mentioned earlier. Right. But Willie and Frank were like, we're going to go out 
and we're going to try and look in the Nahani Valley for Mm -hmm. some gold. Mm -hmm. And they went out actually during winter. They were like, we're going to go out in winter because why not? And they only had, you know, like their primitive gear. Like it was 1904. They had 1904 gear. In winter. In winter. It's cool. Whatever. Was there a lot of wool happening? (laughs) Well, I mean, they're in Canada, so hopefully they would be more like skins, you know, animal skins. Hopefully. Who knows? Who knows? They start out, they go on a train, then they took a boat, and then they hiked. Eventually, they reached this place called Gold Creek. Sounds 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 positive. Yeah. Right. They actually find gold. Okay. They find like a lot of gold, like rivers of gold through the stone. Huh. Yeah. And they're super stoked. They collect as much gold as they can carry and Uh they put it in their stuff and they head back home to Fort Laird. Okay. I'm probably saying that name wrong this whole time. Laird. Whatever. On the way home, they're on the river. They're in the rapids. Right. Mm -hmm. The rapids become insanely intense. They end up crashing everything, all the gold off the boat into the water, gone along with their gear. That's unfortunate. And, you know, I had mentioned the couple Ethel and Mel. Mm -hmm. Right. When they were coming home, they actually show like a spot where they found gold and they weren't sure if it was fool's gold or real gold. Mm -hmm. But they collected a bunch of it in a sock. And then when they were crossing the river, that's the pack that fell off and went into the river. So, I don't know. Maybe it's a thing. Maybe you can't take gold from there. It's cursed. Who knows? These are my theories. Okay. Anyway, somehow they actually do make it home, Willie and Frank. And they are like, we have got to go back. I mean, they saw this just like so much gold. They were like, we're going to make so much money. Mm -hmm. We got to go back. And they have this brother, Charlie. And they're like, Charlie, Chuck, Charles. (laughs) (laughs) whatever you're going by these days whatever whatever yes come with us we're Uh gonna we're gonna be freaking rich yeah and so he was like i don't know guys like that's it seems really treacherous like i'm not super into it so he's like i don't want to go so the next year they're like we're going they go on their second expedition right a year after their second trip charlie charles chuck is like i haven't heard from these guys willie and frank Mm -hmm. but it's probably because they are just like collecting so much gold, like so much gold. It's going to take them a while to get it out of the earth. You know, like they're going to have to like haul mm-hmm. it back. Like mm-hmm. it's fine. Like they're probably they're just working really hard. Yeah. He's like, they're going to be home soon. It's cool. Then year two passes. Oh. And he's like, he's like, maybe this is really taking a while. Maybe they ran into some trouble. I mean, if you think about it, it's like 1906, Right at this point, Charlie is pretty optimistic. (laughs) He's like, they're probably just ran into a little bit of trouble. Like, maybe I'm going to put together a search party. We're going to go check. They've been hitting some raves. Yeah, (laughs) they've met some other friends. (laughs) They've been hitting the e. It's really fine. (laughs) Um, He and his team go out, like, go on the same trail, right? That these Mm -hmm. guys went on. Um, They spot a camp that is on the left bank of the Nahani River. There are some spruce trees. It looks like good. He's like, this must be them. They get there, camp is empty, but there's a message written on a broken dog sled on the runner of the dog sled that says, we have found a fine prospect because it's 1906 and that's how people talk. Uh And so Charlie and his men search the surrounding area. And that's when one of the guys is like, oh, my God, over here, you know, and like everyone's like, oh, my God, there's two corpses. In some versions of the story, they were tied to a tree. In other versions of the story, they're on the ground. Mm -hmm. And one of them is like halfway out of the tent with a blanket over him. And the other one is like reaching out towards a gun or something like that. Either way, they are dead. No heads. Both decapitated. So 
there's still like the rest of the body is still there. It's rest not of like the body a, still there. Not like bones or something. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're decomposed. Decom- okay. But not skeletons. But no head. No head. Heads hey, were never found. If I had anyone to point at right now, it'd be some polar bears. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> this is true. They love a good noggin. I mean, just saying. Not a lie. <laughs> After Willie and Frank were found, Mm-hmm. This is when they people started coming up with like random names for this valley. I think the first one was Headless Creek. Yeah, that's so good. That right. like it, like um, it. Dead Man's Valley. Good. Not that, bad, never, not never heard that one. <laughs> you know what? It was Come on, new. Guys. It was new in 1906. It's I, fine. Maybe. Or I feel like maybe it was like 1908 by the time we found. There were different year like timelines for this story, so I'm not uh-huh. entirely sure. But I feel someplace between 1906 and 1908 mm-hmm. is when they were found. So a number of years later, in 1917, Martin Jorgensen or Jorgensen, he's Swiss, so Jorgensen, right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he was in the Yukon. He was a prospector. He was heading out to the Nahani Valley. No pun of, intended. <laughs> he was heading out to the Nahani Valley to see what he could find. Uh-huh. Um, I think because he had heard about this story of these two men and that there's this crazy amount of gold out there someplace, you know, it had a very like mysterious lost treasure feeling to it. So he's going to see what he could find. Yes. But instead he lost something. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so he did find gold. And actually, he sent a letter home to his family saying that he had, quote, struck it rich. OK. But besides that letter, they never heard from him again. Yikes. Eventually, they don't say how long, eventually, mm-hmm. searchers were sent out and they found his cabin. He had actually built like a little log cabin. Nice. It was burned to the ground. Oh. Weird. And then they found him and no head. Like burned or? Yeah, burned. No head. Same thing, decapitated. Hmm. They could call it Headless Prospector Valley. <laughs> right. That That's really, what like, I would have named like, it. Don't just go saying. mining there. Yeah. yeah. So this is when the rumors of like headhunters, you know, like, oh, there's this indigenous tribe out there that's just like going around killing people. Yeah. It's like the Azmet. Yeah. They're the Rockefeller. Exactly. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So but people were drawn in more more than like no one was as scared of the idea of headhunters as they were excited about the myth of this lost McLeod mine, you know, the treasure that might be out there. And so hundreds of prospectors after this headed out to try and find this lost mine of gold. They headed out, did they? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Head first. Too many opportunities here. <laughs> right? It's so good, but also sad. In 1926, this is kind of a creepy story. 1926, there's this woman. Her name is Annie Lafferty. She was with a hunting party. And I forget if it was like her brother or maybe her husband or she was with a bunch of guys. Another hunter in the party woke up because he heard this weird splashing in the river. And he opens up his tent and he looks out to the river and he sees a woman that he knew was Annie Lafferty. He was like, that looks like Annie Lafferty. But she was completely naked, scrambling up the hillside on all fours. And she's like, the thing that he was hearing was actually the rocks falling down from the side of the hill that she was climbing up, going into the river. Yeah. And she turned around and she faced him and he apparently shrunk back. Her expression, he said, was horribly wrong. Like she was possessed. Her hair was all like crazy, you know, like wide eyes, bearing teeth. Instead of going to be like, hey, Annie, are you okay?" (laughs) (laughs) He closed his tent and went back to bed and waited out the night until the morning. And then they were like, got up, 
Annie was not there. She went someplace else. They don't know where. They never found her again. I can't say that I wouldn't have done the same. Right? Just saying. That's but, like nightmare stuff right there. Jen, I want you to know that if we were on a camping trip and then <laughs> and then I opened my and you were all crazy, I would be like, Jen, oh my God, are you okay? And then I'm like, like, hey. <laughs> like, like that's I would listen. Mm-hmm. As good of friends as we are, if I was like possessed yeah. by some sort of like demon or craze, sure. Like whatever it is. Are you giving me permission to I'm go giving back to you bed? permission to close your tent <laughs> and l- go back to sleep. All right. Which I know you wouldn't go That's back great. to sleep, I but, I, but I would just close your tent. <laughs> it's okay. Just quietly laid no noise. Just <laughs> like the shallowest of breathing. Just all let night. the spirits take me. It's fine. <laughs> it's okay. So <laughs> save yeah. yourself. Very yeah. creepy story. In 1929, there was another gold prospector, Angus Hall, vanished without a trace. In 1931, prospector Phil Powers, he had a cabin there. That cabin was also burned to the ground. And it was so, I guess the fire was so hot that it burned all of power, like only a little piece of powers was left. Ew. Yeah. Whatever happened to the name Angus? Just saying. I mean, we use it for like steak. Yeah. But as like a, do you know anybody named Angus? No, I just remember that movie called Angus. What was that? In like the late 90s. It was really good. Mm. It's not bad. It was about like a kind of a prospector. uh, (laughs) (laughs) It was about, it's like a, a coming of age story about this kind of like bigger kid. In high school. Okay. okay. And he beca- and yeah, no, it's great. It's a great story. It's, it's actually kind of a cool old name. It's really touching. That's if you haven't seen Angus, you should go watch it. It's good. My great grandfather's Rufus. And I'm like, that's oh. such a cool name. Like, what happened? Yeah. Let's bring Rufus back. I feel like Rufus and Angus are now dog names. Oh, yeah. You know, my other great grandpa was Ode, which I feel like is also a dog name. Get it together, Jen. Those are great names. They're great names. Why didn't you name your kids Ode and <laughs> I had girls, so, you know. Well, I mean, does that stop anything? <laughs> Just, yeah. I mean, I, when I was very young, and this is totally a Sesame Street thing, and I'm probably, I've probably talked about it on the podcast before, as I do with all things, I wanted to name my first child Grover. Oh, like, okay. Like Grover 100%. Cleveland? Like Grover Cleveland. But I think in my mind, it was like Grover, because Grover was always my favorite. Oh, Muppet right. On Sesame Street. Yeah. That's okay. It's just like my dreams of becoming a truck driver. <laughs> Those dreams can be made, you know, real, Jen. And someday. One day. One day. I can I can reach. reach 10 for good, buddy. Yeah. I think so truck good. drivers are, I think that's an awesome job. Yeah. There's a lot of women in truck driving now, too. Yeah. If you watch TikTok. I mean, you travel around, you make your own schedule, pretty much. Yeah. You can bring your dog with you. For sure. You have your own little cabin, like sleepy area in the back. Right. As long as you're not like a creepy serial killer, I think it's pretty, pretty awesome. Not a bad, not a bad thing. Also, shout out to all the truck drivers out there because they listen to podcasts and there might be one or two that listen to us. There could be. Oh, my God. If you're a truck driver and you listen to our podcast, can you please write to us? Please, please, please. We would be into that. That would be so cool. And uh, listening to other like, you know, true crime stuff. Mm -hmm. Truck drivers actually solve a lot of crimes. That's true because they see everything. Yes. They're there. They see all the stuff. It's true. Okay, That was great. That was great. Mm -hmm. Okay, moving on. In 1936, there were two more men, Mulholland and Epler. All these names, Jen. They're so so great. They disappeared into the woods, never found. In 1940, a man named Holmberg was found dead. I don't know if he still had his head or not. I feel like all the people that they said that they found in this valley did not have a head. Like not a one. Not a one. I read that someplace that it was like not anybody who's ever been found. But what about the people who found them? They were all okay. I guess. I mean, I'm assuming they're in search parties, you know, right. Bigger numbers. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know. 1945, there was another miner. This one from Ontario was found dead in his sleeping bag, also headless. Ew. At the same time, an, an experienced trapper named John O'Brien suddenly went missing. After a search, he was found next to a campfire. Oh, this one is super. It's like just sad. Okay. Kind of creepy. Frozen to death. Matches still in his hand. It looked like he was flash frozen in place. So maybe just the temperature drop happened really quickly and he just couldn't light his fire, his campfire. So he did have a hit, but yeah, really sad. 1949, there was a man named um, Shabak. I think I'm saying that right. He was found in his cabin. His diary showed that after 43 days without food, he wrote dead man here on a piece of wood, nailed it to the cabin door and went inside. (gasps) That's also very sad. Did he have a head? He did have a head. Okay. Yeah. I think the people who like died of what uh, other causes, but if they were like trying to get gold, then typically no. Okay. At some point before 1962, there was a man who committed suicide by setting off dynamite strapped around his waist. Wow. Messed up. Yeah. In 1962, an aircraft pilot miraculously survived a crash into the valley. He set up a camp a short distance from where his plane went down. According to his diary, he had a lot of provisions, and he was super confident that it would only be a matter of time before he was rescued. But though he was only six miles from where he was meant to go, his destination... Mm-hmm. And planes were always like constantly flying overhead in search of him. They never found him. About 50 days after his diary entries like had started, after his crash, they ended abruptly and they never found him, his body. Whoa. By 1969, there were up to 44 recorded disappearances in all. Wow. It's like in that a... one area. You know, so when we were talking about, and I was saying the polar bears, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and when we weren't recording, video recording, I was, or just oh, recording yeah, in general, yeah. Megan was like, so I, I was like, are there, were there polar bears there? Yeah, yeah. And she's like, no, it's too warm or it's, you know, it's too far south, it's too far south for yeah. polar bears. And I'm like, but they were in Lost, right? Yeah, in Hawaii. Yeah. And so, and, but then <laughs> I'm like thinking, yeah. And then I'm thinking that this kind of reminds me of Lost. Yeah. And actually, I didn't mention it earlier, but there was some lore about how that area is actually like a hell mouth. Wow. It's like a like a hell mouth. Like you could go through the earth in it. Or a vortex. Yeah. Like a, it's like a thing. There's It's like a mysterious place. Like a Bermuda Triangle. Yeah. Like Lost, kind of. Like Lost. If I never finished it all the you, way to the end. Oh, God. I couldn't. If, I don't, don't. Don't, Jen. Just well, save Because I heard I would be disappointed, it and was, I think I just stopped. Because we watched it together. In Peace Corps. In Peace Corps. Uh-huh. And then uh, when I went to the mainland, I was like, oh, I got to finally finish Lost. And I watched it, and I was, like, angry. I was oh, angry about really? it, Jen. Just, like, angry. full anger. Yeah. I'm not doing it. I don't like it. Okay. All right. In 2005, there were two experienced Bushmen, David Horisay and Frederick Hardesty. Uh, They vanished from their cabin. So they were out there, I think, trapping or fishing or whatever. They vanished from their cabin. They were found a month later in places the search party had already gone through many times. So David was found in thick brush with unexplained burns on his arms. And Fred was found floating in a river. Their families ended up like a number of years later, like wanting the case to be reopened by the uh, RCMP, the Royal Mm -hmm. Canadian Mounted Police. Yes. And they are super dissatisfied because the police were like, this was an accident. We don't know how they died. Whatever. Case closed. Mm -hmm. And the family was like, no. David's stepbrother said there were bullet shots all over the place and there was a gunshot in the floor of the cabin. The picture is bigger than just two guys, you know, who died of hypothermia. 
and drowning. There was something else that happened before all that went down. So weird. Another kind of creepy death situation. Mm -hmm. Besides being a hotspot for uncanny deaths, the Nahani Valley is also a hotspot for sightings of strange lights, aerial phenomena, or UFOs, if you will. Right. Obviously, that means that quite a few people blame the disappearances on aliens or ghosts. Some also suggest like, oh, this is where I say it, that this might be a place where the veil is thin between worlds or an entrance to a hollow earth or a hell mouth. So. A vortex. <laughs> or aliens. Just or taking a- people. Just, just aliens. Or doing stuff people. to people. All right. So let's talk a little bit about present day mining. So those are that's it for my deaths. That's it for all the weird. No, that was great. There's... That's a lot. Yeah. And actually, I found this like this episode was sparked by me seeing a TikTok talking about the Headless Valley. And I was like, how have I never heard of this? Mm -hmm. And then I went and looked it up. See, TikTok, it's paying off. It is. It is. Really is. (laughs) (laughs) So mining, uh, current day mining. There is a mine called the Prairie Creek Mine, which was previously developed in the 1980s. And it was in production for three months before it was placed in a receivership, which in my like very limited knowledge of legal terms is that the mine was in trouble financially three months after it opened. Really bad financial trouble. And someone had to come and be its guardian. And I could only like think of that this is like conservatorship for a person. So this was like the Britney Spears of mines, except <laughs> I can make that joke now because hashtag free Britney. Like she already got whatever. She doesn't have her conservatorship anymore. But right, right. Anyway. So the Canadian Zinc Corporation acquired the Prairie Creek mine in 1991. And in the last couple of years, like in 2021, there were some developments at this mine, uh, which I didn't mention. It's mined for zinc, lead and silver. Oh, so no gold. No, gold. <laughs> maybe that's the key. <laughs> <laughs> there's this. Uh, so the there's a company under Canadian Zinc Corporation called Norzinc, N-O-R-Z-I-N-C, that back in June of 2022 was awaiting a mining license to mine at this Prairie Creek mine. And it's a pretty large mining enterprise, and it's meant to cut out a portion of the Nahani National Park. So if you look at the whole park map, there's like this big spot. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. not that big in comparison to the acreage, but it's just like this hole in kind of the middle. A hell mouth. (laughs) (laughs) It's a hell mouth in the middle that the government was like, cool, you guys can mine here. Like, we're good with it. Okay. It it just definitely reminds me of when we talked about mining and how in the U.S. national park system, you know, they allowed like mining rights and stuff Mm -hmm. like that on public Mm -hmm. lands. And so I feel like this is a very similar situation. Anyhow, there's this article written by Emily Blake, and she says the owners of the Prairie Creek Mine in the Northwest Territories Decho region should hear this month whether they will be granted a water license and land permit for the mining project. Canadian Zinc Corporation, the parent company of Nor Zinc, applied to the Mackenzie Valley Land and Water Board in March of 2021 for a new land permit and renewed water license covering the proposed underground zinc, lead, and silver mine. The company has expanded its plan since the project was originally granted a water license in 2013, arguing that it's needed to cover what are likely to be increased capital and operating costs. And I guess from what I understand, these like licenses are meant to be like short term licenses. Mm -hmm. So they're not it's like you don't want them to go for too long. Like you want them to have to reapply every like five to seven years. Anyway, during a four-day public hearing in December, Rohan Hazeltrun, North Zinc's president and chief executive, described the proposed project as a reasonable mine with a small physical and environmental footprint. 
Mm. And again, I feel like mine's not so small. Not so small. Yeah. He said Prairie Creek would provide more than 350 jobs and generate more than one billion in government taxes and royalties during its life. He also pointed out zinc has been named a critical mineral in Canada, arguing zinc is important for green and decarbonized economy. Mm-hmm. I'm like, OK, all right. Okay. OK, federal, territorial and indigenous governments and organizations, meanwhile, used the same hearing to outline concerns about Canadian zinc's pr- proposal and recommendations to address the mine's potential impact on the environment and indigenous tribes. So at the same time that this one hearing is going on, everybody else shows up and they're like, we have concerns. Mm-hmm. The mine site is located in the southern Mackenzie Mountains adjacent to Prairie Creek, also known as Tlo Dehe, Dehe, about 43 kilometers upstream from the South Nahani River. So that's not great. No. It's less than seven kilometers downstream from Nahani National Park Reserve or the Naha Dehi, which is kind of like that real important area. Yeah. All right. So this is the part where they start talking about the water license. I'm kind of reading this article a little bit verbatim. Mm-hmm. by Emily, but it's just because there was a lot of stuff that I had to like work through to fully understand. I feel like it's good if we what's happening. Yeah. yeah. So the Canadian zinc company was initially granted a water license with a seven year term in 2013. And the company is now asking at this time for a license with a 25 year term. Ooh. Yeah. And that takes into account larger stockpiles and improvements to the mine's water <laughs> management plan. David Harpley, who's the vice president of permitting for Norzinc, explained that as a junior company, financing for the project is critical, but made challenging by permits that expire before the end of the mine's life. And for me, as a person who like understands why permitting is on like a regular basis, mm-hmm. I feel like I don't care if this is inconvenient for you. If you want to keep this is a price of business. In my brain, right? If they're going to say every five to seven years and you got to do it within that time frame. Yeah. And so they're asking for, yeah, this much longer term permitting so that they can keep doing business without having to worry about it, Mm -hmm. which I don't like. Right. So they say that actually the Prairie Creek mine has a projected lifespan of 15 years. And Norzink said that it could it could actually remain in operation for many more years beyond that. But I'm kind of like, also, that's to me a red flag. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, oh, we think it can go much longer than the 15 years it's expected to go. Like, why? Why? Right. Why would you keep going longer? Anyway, Harpley suggested that a condition be added requiring a regulatory review every five years. So instead of a full permit, he's saying, OK, look, we're asking for the permitting to last for 25 years. But every five years, we'll do a regulatory review. Okay. We'll still keep our permit during that time. And like, I guess if they are in like out of compliance. Yeah. Then they'll have to stop and like re-permit up. OK. Yeah. So that's what he's saying is like, as you know, like Norzink is saying, like, hey, we'll do this. Like, this is a stipulation, but we really want that 25 year permit. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, that still feels wacky to me, but whatever. 25 years is a long time. But at the same time, I'm sure the permit process is very arduous. For sure. So they're trying to make it as long as possible. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they're probably going to be inspected mm-hmm. by some, fe- you know, federal, federal aid. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Every year or I'm, I'm sure yeah. they have annual inspections. So I would think there's definitely going to be annual safety inspections. But yeah, 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 I wonder about compliance and regulation, all that stuff. So like, that's going to happen anyway. So they're hopefully. just trying to tie it into getting this longer permit. True that. Yeah. So representatives for the territorial government, however, said there is no precedent for a water license to have such a condition due to the, quote, extreme level of uncertainty with a mine proposal, particularly regarding the water management 
the territorial government said a five to seven year term would be more appropriate. So they're like pushing back on it. Mm -hmm. Parks Canada and then the First Nations people also recommended a term of five to seven years for the water license, while the Acho Dene Koe First Nation said it should be no longer than seven years. And the Naha Dehe Dene Band recommended a term of eight years. So I'm glad that in this conversation are a bunch of different First Nations groups that are coming together and saying like, hey, we're cool with like eight years or right. we would rather have five. Like there's a conversation that's happening. They're that important they're, stakeholders. Yeah, in they're this, included. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. The First Nations cited potential impacts from increased heavy traffic and metals runoff on the indigenous and treaty rights of its members and criticized what it described as a lack of meaningful aquatic effects monitoring program. So they're saying that they have some concerns they want those addressed before they even talk about a 25-year water line. Like, you guys have to have a better aquatic management, like, monitoring plan. You mm-hmm. have to be better. Like, what's going to happen with a runoff? How are you going to mitigate that? Like, all of these things. Our position is that our concerns have not been heard, have not been considered, and have not been accommodated, the First Nation wrote. We look at how this project has been proposed and can't help but feel there are better alternatives to the successful construction and operation of the Prairie Creek Mine. The First Nation called for those involved in the project to shift from an adversarial culture to one that is based on mutual respect and collaboration to proactively address concerns. The Naha Dehi Dene Band, however, stressed that the mine site and proposed access road are located entirely within its traditional territory, Elder Jim Bidsaka said that while the community of Nahani Boot supports the mine, it had been, quote, getting a lot of interference from other communities claiming rights. He said, we should be the one who approves it. There are so many little concerns outside of the community slowing down the project. We have money now. Let's, if we can, approve it. So within the First Nations groups, it mm-hmm. seems like there are different factions of like, we want this to happen. We want jobs to be created here. We want to support this mine. We also want, you know, monitoring all these other things. But there are other nations that are like, they need to be way more strict about how they're doing. I stuff. would be on the nation that's like, let's bring in the evil spirits. <laughs> And let them take care of it. Let's let's just see how that goes. Yeah. O- open the hell mouth. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be that one. Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> I'm like, let's just let's just try it. Yeah. Open the portal. Good times. <laughs> kind of I don't know if this happened during or after, but Norzink signed impact benefit agreements with the Naha Dehe Dene band and another one of the First Nations. And I cannot pronounce this for to like save my life. It's like a different alphabet. When I'm looking at the words, <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm just going to say initials LK, First Nation. So the benefit agreements say that they are committed to ensuring the project moves forward in an environmentally and socially responsible way. And the folks from both of those First Nations say, we must take care of the land so the land can take care of us. But Parks Canada, they had closing arguments and all of So there's like so many entities. Mm-hmm. They said it found that, quote, the lack of baseline information, commitments to monitoring and contingency planning, it's insufficient. They don't have confidence in the Prairie Creek mine, and they feel that it's going to negatively impact the National Park Reserve. Anyway, that's probably a very accurate finding. Yeah. I mean, I don't know where mines have ever done any given provided any benefit done to the ecosystem. Stuff. Yeah. No. The, yeah. The only thing I can think of is the reclamation at the end. You know, I when I was in Pennsylvania over the summer, we were driving through areas of like really young forest, but like good, like very healthy mm-hmm. uh, forest. And I was like, oh, wow, this is kind of. And then my sister was saying like, oh, yeah, there were all these mines here, like strip mines, but they they had to do mitigation and replant and do all the stuff after they were closed. And I was like, well, that's kind of cool. But out to what? 
Yeah. And, to, right. Yeah. yeah. Did they? It's not perfect. All the contaminants but. and all that stuff. Like what? <laughs> Don't worry about it, Jen. At <laughs> night, at night, it's beautiful. The trees light up. They light up. On their own. Right? It's mm-hmm. amazing. That's so good. No anyway, animals to be found. It's fine. No birds. It's quiet when you walk through the woods. <laughs> Creepy. All right. The federal agency also pointed out that the park reserve has a greater diversity of vegetation than any other area of comparable size in the Northwest Territories, which I had mentioned earlier. Um, And that could be impacted by the dust, all the mining activities, leaching, all the things you were talking about. Totally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They ended up, I feel, so in this article, they were talking about how they're waiting for the Land and Water Board to make a decision on this license. So they had this meeting. All these people came made their arguments. The Land and Water Board is like, cool, we'll get back to you. In September of 2022, the Diné First Nation signed an agreement with Parks Canada to ensure that they receive social and economic opportunities related to the Nahani National Park Reserve in the Northwest Territories. And Parks Canada said that this agreement with the Dehe Dene Band and Death Cho, it includes new models for cooperative management, funding for new indigenous guardian programs and social and economic opportunities. So this kind of happened after all, right? Like in 2021, they're talking about all these things. There really wasn't a decision on the permitting. And then the Dene First Nations people met with Parks Canada. They signed this agreement, basically mm-hmm. like we get all the benefits of this land. Like Good. this is how it's going to be. Right. So I think that's great. Just tell them to go prospecting for gold. <laughs> be like, look, just take a pause from the mine. Have you guys like seen this? There's gold a over lot here? of gold. Have you a heard lot. of the McCloyd mine? It's a lot. What? And then the big, I just picture like a big Dementor type spirit <laughs> with like skulls all attached to it. Just sucking heads off of people. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Just adding to their skull. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. Their, their skull collection. So after this agreement happened between Parks Canada and the Diné First Nation, the Diné First Nation did end up working out and signing an environmental agreement in October of 2022 with the Norzink Company. And Norzink put out a press release and they said that the EA formalizes the company's commitment towards protecting the environment and sacred traditional lands upon which the project will be developed while providing for environmental monitoring, review, and oversights through the life of the project. They kind of go on to like say what press releases say, like we're like basically super great and the we have the support of this local community, which right. is great. I think yeah, that's yeah. great. And I feel like there is like some level of oversight from the indigenous community, mm-hmm. which is important. So from what I understand, I don't I couldn't find an article where it said, like, for sure, they got the permits to actually do the mining. Right. But I think that this this agreement that they made at the end of last year, 2022, is going to be the stepping stone for them getting the permits cleared and them starting to do the mining. So they did say in part of it, they talked a lot about the significant economic impact. Right. Which to me, whenever we're talking about the environment, is just a very short short-sighted thing it is like yes it's great you're going to bring in a billion dollars you know or five million a year and direct benefits to be you, all of these things but is it worth it but it's like how many years mm-hmm. we're talking about like the tiniest speck in the drop in the bucket you right. know what i mean right like it's not even the drop you know and yeah. the impacts of that tiny speck are like so long yeah anyway. and catastrophic yeah All right. So that's uh, kind of the portion of our mining talk. Okay. I mean, if you want to know more about mining, go listen to the mining episode. Yep. Whichever one that is. Just us being angry about people (laughs) ruining up the land. Anyway. Prospectors. I'm going to talk real quick about this thing that I read about a documentary 
that was starting to be made. So there's this guy, Mark J. McPherson. Mm -hmm. He's a filmmaker from Calgary, Alberta. And he first learned of the Nahani like 15 years ago. He was writing a paper for his history of exploration course at the University of Calgary. He comes across an article about the McLeod brothers and Martin Jorgensen. Oh. And he's like, what? That's insane. So for 10 years, he started to, I guess, come up with film scripts that he was writing, and he was using these stories as inspiration. Okay. And he eventually decided he wanted to learn more about these headless tales and other stories that are around all these, like, lore, spooky stories all around the valley. And he also wanted to learn it from the Diné people. He was Mm -hmm. like, I want to hear it from the source. Right. I'm going to go out there. Yeah. And so... He was able to find written word from European and colonial Canadian explorers that mentioned centuries of oral history from the Diné people, but he was never able to find that written history from the actual people themselves. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, he's wanting to, like, find all this information out. Document it. Document it, yes. There is a website. It is called Secrets of the Nahani. I think it's, like, secretsofthenahani.com. It's for this documentary, and I read about it in an outside outside magazine article Mm -hmm. that he was going to be doing this and it was like in 2019 like we should have already seen i was like where's the documentary covid (laughs) so yeah covid for sure but they're also in like nowheresville you know what i Mm -hmm. mean like Mm -hmm. nobody is there but he's i know he's gonna go talk to people so sure i'm sure covid was a thing a factor i mean it was it was a big thing i was there we were all there we're all there (laughs) So he says that his goal is to, quote, make a documentary exploring the Nahani River valleys to share the experience of its natural wonders to others, while at the same time connecting these areas to legends and mysteries that add another layer of curiosity and character to the region. You're just irritated that's not done yet because you wanted to watch it for this episode. I wanted to watch it for this episode. You should write to him. Not done. They actually did the trip already. The actual trip down the Nahani to film started in summer of 2019. So just write him and be like... What's going on? WTH. <laughs> I want to know. And when you go to the website, all it does is like, there's like a trailer of a Dene guy, a man, like speaking about stuff, but not really. It's like not a lot of information. And also the trailer's like a little bit, I don't know if it was my connection or what, but it was like a little bit grainy. Uh-huh. Anyway, because we haven't heard anything about it, or right. I couldn't find anything about it, which is probably just a symptom of me not being good at finding stuff. <laughs> but what if, what if Jen, What? what if they went? And they did some like preliminary filming and they put out a trailer. But then when they did the actual like full on trip, they didn't come back. They didn't come back. Oh, I know. My God. I'm like, I want to know what's going on. Then you should write him and be yeah. like, are you OK? <laughs> are you OK? Are you alive? Just are want, you there? It's, you been still- a cu- it's been a couple of years later. <laughs> Do you still have your head? Just like, know. just like Charlie, Chuck, Charles, right? Yes. A couple of years later, go check it's on It's been a couple of years. We thought you were doing this thing. How's it going? Just want to check in. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Sorry about that. I know. I was really disappointed. But there is a great, I mean, everybody who's listening to this podcast right now needs to go look up the Paranormal Scholar on YouTube what? and watch the video that this woman does. I forget her. I think her first name is Laura. I cannot remember her last name. I'm so sorry. The paranormal scholar. She looks directly into the camera and tells this mesmerizing story of the Nahani Valley. It's great. And she does it in this like she has like she's British. Mm -hmm. So she has like a British like BBC anchor voice. Yeah. And it's so good. I love the sound of that because, you know, I love paranormal stuff. Yes. So I I feel like looking it up. You need to go follow her. She's great. I loved everything about it. 
I'm not into paranormal stuff and I liked it. You know what I mean? Yeah. You can also listen, and I didn't listen to this and I wish that I had, but I didn't have time. There's an episode, it's episode 181 of a podcast called Dark Poutine, True Crime and Dark History by Mike Brown. Mm -hmm. So it's like a Canadian guy, which I love that it's called the Dark Poutine. That's so funny. (laughs) But yeah, I totally pilfered his references for this episode. I was like, oh, where did it? It was actually kind of difficult just to like search up stuff. It was like... You get like some little stories here and there. So I all of these folks had amazing references, especially the archival stuff. That's the paranormal scholar. She looked up all these archival documents and stuff. It was really cool. And then there's also a documentary from 2020 called Nahani River, Nahani River of Forgiveness. And this is the one that I mentioned earlier, where there are indigenous people, one of the tribes of the Diné who are building those moose skin boats again. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's cool. So that's the one. It was shown at a, like, a documentary film conference festival. festival thing. Yeah. yeah. There is a link in our references to the page for it. And it seems like you could buy the film to watch it for, like, $12. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I can't, it was, like, it never took me to the page where I could actually, like, purchase it. So I feel like it was, like, to buy a ticket at the time in 2020 oh, when they were showing it. Right, so I right, don't, right. yeah. Anyway. There's a lot of interesting stuff out there, but definitely. So history is so interesting. It is. It's super interesting. I think that what I love almost about paranormal stuff is it ties in. Mm-hmm. It all like is together. Yeah. For right. Sure. For so sure. I think that's a big reason why I mentioned it. I love it. So our organization to support for today is the Conservation Alliance. You can find them at www.conservationalliance.com. Oh, mm-hmm. Yeah, we've done that before, right? Maybe. I've, well, I had a hard time finding anywhere that you could donate. Like, there is an old website for the Diné uh, tribes, mm-hmm. and I couldn't find anything where you could donate. And it was just kind of like information, and it was a little weird. So this was the only place that I could find. They're actually based out of Bend, Oregon, but they do have a Nahani Valley-specific page. Right. And I mentioned them earlier in the episode that they were part of the preserving of 7 million acres. Right. OK. Um, yeah. The Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society used their support in order to do that. So okay. that's super great. They also have, probably they're like fiduciary. Yeah. Type. Yeah. However. Yeah. They yeah. Their partner. And they do have a 92 percent on Charity Navigator. So, yeah, they are, they're big. They've been around. Yeah. Yeah. And then just to in case people don't remember, I'll I'll read their kind of like mission-y statement. Right, let's do, let's do. They say we harness the power of business and outdoor communities to protect North America's cherished wild places and outdoor spaces. Through the collective strength of our membership companies from banks to breweries and outdoor gear, we champion solutions that balance the best interests of the land and water, wildlife, and people. Since 1989, we've helped protect 73 million acres and 3,580 river miles, remove or halt. 37 dams, purchase 21 climbing areas, and designate five marine reserves. Wow. That's a a lot of work. That's a lot of work. And I just want to say that, like, they should add something about rebuilding dams, but with beavers. Yes. In there. Beavers are our future. Yeah. They should make a little, like, notation. Oh, these are man-made dams. Yes. 37 man-made dams. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But we're helping beavers. You know, like, they should do that. And then they put beavers to replace. For sure. The man-made dams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that is my story for today, the Nahani Valley or the Valley of the Headless Men. That's so good. So, Jen. Yes. What would you take in your emergency preparedness kit if you were hiking into the Nahani Valley? Hmm. So, you know, I was I was thinking about this, you know, like if you were going to go there, there's a vortex, mm-hmm. a hell mouth, wh- whatever. Yeah, yeah. Whatever you want to call it, a mm-hmm. portal. 
mm-hmm. if you will. Yeah. And of course, one of my old favorite movies was Poltergeist. Mm-hmm. And all I can think of is that little clairvoyant lady yeah. that came yeah. and was like, this house is a clear. <laughs> I That's my memory. I don't know if that's exactly what she said. Yeah. But her name was Tangina in the movie. And uh, she, her real name, mm-hmm. Zelda Rubenstein. Even even better. Even better. And she was like a human, right, human right, uh, rights activist. That's perfect. She fits both sides of the coin. Yeah. That's great. But I want to bring the Tangina mm-hmm. Barons clairvoyant yeah. from Poltergeist. I, I think that's Because she is going to be able to deal with the spirits. Mm-hmm. Yes. And possibly, like, close the portal. I have faith close in her. Up. Although it didn't work in Poltergeist. Right, right. Like, it actually, the house just got sucked and fit back into the ground. Yeah. Because, because I'm, like, a slightly later generation than you. <laughs> <laughs> a half... Just a little, just a little bit. I was thinking like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, except that when she closed the hell mouth, she destroyed an entire city. So, oh well, I mean, mm, not well, bad. I mean, there's what? How many? Seven right? million acres? Maybe. It's fine. Just a little. No one. It's a blip. It's a blip. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still going with uh, Tangina, the clairvoyant from Poltergeist. I think, I think that's a good. I think that's a good choice. Bring her with you. Perfect. I think you'll be able to leave with your gold and your head. There we go. I mean, that's the most important part. <laughs> Gold first, then head. <laughs> then head. Well, thanks, Megan. That Perfect. was a really interesting story. I never heard of that place. You're very welcome. And I love that kind of stuff. So Yeah, yeah. I knew you'd like it. I was that like, was as awesome. soon as I saw Paranormal, I was like, oh, Jen's going to love this. I love it. I love it. <laughs> anyway, awesome. thanks. Thank you. You're Gonna Die Out There is produced by us, Jen and Megan, and edited by the talented and super nice guy, Jonathan Pillsbury. Thank you, Jonathan. Yay. Yay. Uh, All of this is possible because of an amazing group of Nature Nerd patrons. If you would like to be part of our super cool nerd community on Patreon, just go to our website at you'regonnadieoutthere.com or you can check our link tree on our Instagram page, which is kind of amazing. It is. I'm sorry. But it is. Uh, another way you can support is by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcast. Uh, if you do, Jen will send you a really kick-ass sticker. You just have to send us your mailing address. I will do it if I forget. Hey, if you left us a review and I didn't send you a sticker, send us an email. Let me know. Just let me know. Uh, also, we would love to hear from you. We get a lot of our stories from listener suggestions. A lot. We kind of steal them. All the time. Yeah, Um, because they're so good. So if you would like to do that, go to our website. We have a contact page at you'regonnadieoutthere.com or an email, you'regonnadieoutthere at gmail.com. And at the beginning of the episode, we give you a shout out. (laughs) Thanks for listening. And until next time. Don't die out there. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. And until next time. Don't die out there. Bye. Bye. Totally. We went to the Plains land of what's America. What's the rave? Let's like what's the choice? Like rave drug? I, I feel like it's uh E, ecstasy. Ecstasy, yeah. Yeah. There you go. I had this friend in college who was like really into raves. Uh-huh. And she was so innocent. She was like a very innocent person. Uh-huh. And really nice. Really nice girl. Anyway. And <laughs> one day we were talking about, you know, what have people done? in terms of like illegal substances mm-hmm. and she's like i've never done drugs and we were like but you go to atlanta all the time for raves 
like, what are you doing at the raves? And she was like, no, E is not a drug. And we were like, are you okay? <laughs> wow. E is like hard, more hardcore than some of the other things people are talking about. What are you talking about? Right. Yeah. Mm. Poor girl. Yeah. So it's in case great. you needed to know, E Naivete. is not a drug. Yes, it was great. So on my way up to see, like, we record at Megan's place. So on my, on my way with my kids, mm-hmm. we were having this, I don't know, giving them my mindless, like, thoughts <laughs> on, because we were listening to songs and we were jamming out to some stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was like, something, there was a part where Christina Aguilera, like, sings a piece of, you know how she, like, yeah. feature features? <laughs> Yeah. And I was like, you guys, listen, Christina Aguilera can actually sing like she yeah. that girl can sing like she's really good. She's Whatever anybody range. may think yeah. about her, she can sing. And yeah. and my daughter, my 11 year old was like, well, what do people think about her? I'm like, I don't know. just whatever. But she can sing. Yeah. I was like, unlike, you know, Britney Spears, who actually can't to me, in my opinion. Right. That's a hot take, Jen. Cannot sing. <laughs> cannot yeah. sing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so and, and so my daughter. She can dance, though. She was like she was like, well, what, you know what does she sing? And so I went back and I was like playing, uh, what's the original? Hit me baby one more time. Yeah. I was playing that one. I was like, you heard it, you heard it, you heard it, you know, cause they watch TikToks and that's yeah. how they know all the kind of like older, I mean, it's older oh music, yes. but I was kind of like jamming. I was like, you know, it's a fun song. It's, it's catchy. Yeah. But listen to her sing. It's, and then my daughter started making fun of her. Oh my God. She's like, <laughs> like just, cause she does have that kind of voice. She has, no, it, it's not a very strong voice. No. Yeah. In my opinion, it's there's no there's I'm not saying she's talentless. No, she but she's she's a great dancer. She is very good she at might entertaining. Be entertaining yes. But yeah. Not a good not a strong singer. It, it's like J Lo. Yeah. A good actress. Yeah. Bad singing. Oh man. Not good. I am partially looking forward to the Grammys this year because she's gonna do that tribute to Whitney Houston. Like I kind of uh, want to see that happen, but I also never I watch don't any of those shows. But yeah, I, I watch it after the fact. Like after right. it's happened, I'm like, oh, let me see all the reels. I don't remember what year Britney Spears was like a thing too. I'm like, how? When oh, was that? That's got to be 90s. Like, yeah, it was like the 90s. I I feel like I feel like it was like late 90s, like 98, 96 to 98. I don't even really remember. All because I know is early I, 2000s. She was big because that's the time she was with Justin Timberlake. Okay. And they were that denim. Regardless, I never was, that wasn't my thing. Yeah. I was never listening to Britney Spears. No. So it could be part of my opinion. She she showed up at dances for me. Okay. Yeah. Right. Like dances. Those or, songs. Yeah. Formals, whatever. So I was already, I was already out of high school by then. So yeah. I was already like, I was just, I was grunging it hard. Well, I was probably listening to some Ani DeFranco at that point, not wait, Britney Spears. Wait a minute. You weren't like a pop princess? What, what are you talking about? <laughs> I know. It's surprising. What are you talking about? That's crazy. Yeah. Pretty sure I was not. I yeah. No, same. I was definitely of the I like... was like some Tori Amos right then. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, super fan. Yeah. Still. <laughs> She's still the, she yes. still comes up as my number one Spotify every year. Yeah. Like forever. She's so good. I'm like, why do we even, why do we even do this anymore, Let's Spotify? Let's not even do this. Of course it's going to be her. Anyway. Anyway. Okay. End of rant. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing.